Open your Bibles, if you would, please, to Psalm 104. Psalm 104. For some time now, we've been looking at creation and the need to recover a healthy doctrine of creation. I want, again, to acknowledge my debt to two books in particular that have helped me in this study. God's Good World, Reclaiming the Doctrine of Creation by Jonathan R. Wilson. And The Politics of Gratitude, Scale, Place, and Community in the Global Age by Mark Mitchell. Last Sunday, we looked at the fact that we must have a healthy a correct view of the one God who is Father, Son, and Spirit in order to have a healthy view of creation. We need to understand that if a good grammar of the one God who is Father, Son, and Spirit guides a Christian doctrine of creation, then errors in such a a grammar, if we can call it that, can lead to tragic results in our understanding of life as God's gift and the rule of the cosmos. Simply put, if we have bad grammar when it comes to the matter of the one God, then it will lead to bad thinking and bad living. And just to review quickly what we looked at last week, just consider the the, uh, possible errors. For example, those who believe in Father and Son but no Spirit. In this view, there is no place for God's ongoing relationship with the world, and creation becomes nature. God's continuing work in the world, if you wish God the Father made the world, and then he sends God the Son into the world on sort of a rescue mission uh, directed only toward human beings, not the rest of creation, just those who are human beings. This view sees the world only as marked by the fall, sin, and death, and the Christian life is simply a matter of holding on for dear life until we die or until Jesus comes back. And in some ways, there's no basis for a continuing relationship with God and creation. So we have a disengaged creator, the Father, who made the world, and an intervening redeemer, Jesus, who came on a rescue mission. And that's pretty much it. And I think, if we're not careful, we are more inclined to take this view than we realize, because, and it shows up in the fact that we take a utilitarian approach to life. Uh, Such people do not see any beauty or glory in creation. They only see it for its usefulness. Then another possible error is to believe in the Father and the Spirit, but there is no Son. That is, we'd say that, in fact, God created the world and the Spirit sustains it. In this view, the world is not broken. There is no need for redemption. The good news is that there is no need for redemption. We've simply been blinded to the world's goodness and beauty by primitive and obsolete belief. And so the work of Jesus, if you wish, is to expose the fallenness and the evil of this world. Well, that's what we think. But if, in fact, that's not, if you have Father and Spirit and no Son, then Jesus simply becomes the one who teaches us how to live in the Spirit. And that's pretty much it. 
then there is a view where there is no father and there is no son, there is only spirit. And oftentimes this is sort of a, an overcorrection uh, to those who have neglected the spirit. So now people focus only on the spirit. What this means, though, is that God is not Trinity, that God is solitary, without relationship, without love, until he creates the world. Because, you remember, love happens because you have the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, and you have this ongoing relationship between the three of them. But if you only have one, he cannot love, he cannot be loved, until he creates something to love. Ultimately, this is not a Christian view at all. It, it really lapses into paganism. And we would say it is spirit lowercase s and not capital S. Then there are those who see only the Father. This is the more familiar form of Unitarianism. The one God who is known as the Father creates the world, sets the rules for the world, lets it go its own way, directed by the rules and ordering intrinsic to it as by the Creator. This, oftentimes, we would call deism. Now, in deism, there is a place for Jesus of Nazareth, not as the Son, not as one of the three members of the one God, but as the one human being who perfectly exemplifies the way we are supposed to live. Someone who is in touch with the rules, the laws of creation, if you wish. Then there are those who believe only in the Son, and this, I think, oftentimes starts out right and then goes off track. The people who are deeply committed to following the example of Jesus, to a life of discipleship that is based profoundly on who Jesus is. But at a certain point, there is no longer a place for the Father or for the Spirit. And so creation becomes either one of two things, either something created by another deity altogether, this is what the Gnostics believe, or in fact, Creation simply becomes the stage where we are supposed to live out this discipleship in which we follow Jesus. To go back again, in order to recover a healthy doctrine of creation, we must have a healthy view of the one God who is Father, Son, and Spirit. If we lack one or more members of this one God, then we will have bad grammar. And one of the results is that we will have, tragically, a wrong view of creation. We must have a good grammar of the one God if we are to have a good doctrine of creation. Now, I don't know, you might be thinking, I believe in the Trinity, part of this congregation, and we confess. It is in our confession of faith, the Apostles' Creed, that there is Father, Son, and Spirit. And Damon... uh, no offense, but I don't think that I am guilty of any of these errors. I would suggest that, in fact, I think that we are, and part of this is that we are human, part of it is that we are sinners, that at different times in our lives we have an incomplete view of the one God. And from time to time we tend to ignore one or more members of the one God. And I think this shows up most clearly in our praying. that our prayers oftentimes are directed to God the Father alone. And then at the end we say in Jesus' name, so that's sort of there, but where's the work of the Spirit? Um, I would suggest that we really need to think about the one God who is Father, Son, and Spirit 
and it needs to inform uh, every aspect of our belief. One more thing before we move on. Uh, a, a book came out, I think, in the last year, uh, entitled The Experience of God, Being Consciousness and Bliss. And chapter one is entitled God is Not a Proper Name. As the author writes, there are two senses in which the word God, and that's capital G, or God, lower case G, can be properly used. Most modern languages generally distinguish between the two usages, as I have done here, by writing only one of them with the uppercase first letter as though it were a proper name, which it is not. I would suggest, this is something we need to think about, that in the same way that we have moved from creation to nature, in the same way I think we have moved from Father, Son, and Spirit to God. And so we say God without thinking of the implications that there are three persons, that there is relationship, there is love, that there is life, and simply becomes God. And in some ways becomes quite impersonal. Um, There is no relationship, simply someone who is in charge. We must have good grammar when it comes to the one God who is Father, Son, and Spirit, if we are going to have a good doctrine of creation. With that in mind, let us now turn to creation and look at what Scripture says about it. We could spend forever here, but we will only look at a couple aspects today. Um, Listen as I read from our text today. It's Psalm 104, beginning in verse number 27. And I would confess, I could in fact read the entire psalm because it deals with God and his creation. These all look to you to give them their food at the proper time. When you give it to them, they gather it up. When you open your hand, they are satisfied with good things. When you hide your face, they are terrified. When you take away their breath, they die and return to the dust. When you send your spirit, they are created and you renew the face of the earth. May the glory of the Lord endure forever. May the Lord rejoice in his works. He who looks at the earth and it trembles, who touches the mountains and they smoke. I will sing to the Lord all my life. I will sing praise to my God as long as I live. May my meditation be pleasing to him as I rejoice in the Lord. But may sinners vanish from the earth and the wicked be no more. Praise the Lord, O my soul. Praise the Lord. What does scripture tell us about creation? Uh, I want us to explore at least two descriptions that we find in scripture. The first is creation as gift. If we would be honest, I think we often think or we experience creation as a burden rather than as a gift from the creator. When you think of economic difficulties, health problems, environmental woes, um, Yeah, the idea that creation is a gift from the Creator sounds a bit counterintuitive. But we must take care not to allow our circumstances to determine how we understand things, how we understand this world. Rather, we are to be guided by Scripture, the vision in Scripture. And what we find in Scripture is that creation is a gift that is being redeemed. Yes, God created the world perfect. And yet, because of sin, it is fallen, but it is in the process of being redeemed. Stop and think a moment. I think that when we think of creation as gift, if ever we do, 
we may do so, though we shouldn't, without reference to God's creation or, or God's creating or God's redeeming work. We're like, okay, Damon, fine. Creation is gift. But have we thought about creation itself? God's creating, God's sustaining things, as we've read here in Psalm 104, or God's redeeming things. Creation is a gift, not a burden, because creation is the substance of God's redemptive work. It leads to the new creation. As we've seen in this series, that it is in creation and redemption together that they are pointing in the same direction, and that is to the new creation. The new creation consists of all things of this world that are reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. This means that in this promise and hope, which is being acted out daily, we should understand that what we experience now as burden is in fact gift and one day will be revealed as gift. Wilson writes about this. Yes, even the hard, impossible, nonsensical parts of life may become gifts through the redemption of creation. Creation is a gift through the economy of God's creative activity. We need to remember that the one God who is Father, Son, and Spirit is life. And the one God did not need to do something in order to become God. The one God lives in relationship from beginning to end, Father, Son, and Spirit. There is no need of something outside of the one God in order to be in relationship. The one God did not create the world so that he could have friends, if you wish, someone that he could hang out with, someone that he could communicate with. He created as a gift, the gift of life and relationship. Creation as the work of the one God is a gift because that work gives to the cosmos the overflowing joy of life and relationship. Life and relationship with the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. When we have When we see the one God who is three persons in relationship and in love, this overflows and God creates the world. No greater gift could be given and no one could give this gift but the creator. Both creation and redemption are gifts. But there's something we need to be clear about here and we may not articulate this but I think It's in the back of our minds. We assume that God created freely. He created because he wanted to. But that he redeems because he has to. You know, he created a perfect world and it got messed up. And so now he's sort of under obligation uh, to redeem this thing that he made. The reality is God creates in freedom and God redeems in freedom I hope that before the end of this series to return to the issue of our care for creation. Um, To look at the fact that creation as gift opens up the possibility that we are to care for God's creation in accordance with what God is doing as he redeems it. Not in accordance with our own false vision of things the way we imagine they should be. So, first of all, the first description is we would say creation as gift. The second is creation as blessing. To receive creation as a gift means that we are dependent 
God has given us something. But we are not to be passive. God blesses his work of creation. And in that blessing, he calls us in life to be participants of his work. We are to confess and to affirm God's work in creation and to recognize it that it is, in fact, blessing. Let's put it simply. Blessing is intrinsic to the meaning of creation. If you remember from Genesis chapter 1, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living thing that moves on the ground. If you think about it, just as we might wonder if creation as gift is possible, given some circumstances, the declaration of creation as blessing runs counter to much of our experiences and observations of life. If you think about it, so many people on this planet, for them life is short and nothing but difficult. So how do we dare say that creation is blessing? we affirm from what we find in Genesis 1 that creation is God's act of blessing. And we affirm that in creating, God gives work and resources for work to humans. See, for those who see work as a curse or a burden, this does not make sense. I think in part because how they understand work is quite narrow. And they are thinking in terms of the world, if you wish, and not creation, of nature and not God's creation. So work for many people is a four-letter word. It is a curse. But if we begin with God's creation, we can see that from the very beginning, work is tied to blessing. To rephrase what we find in Genesis chapter 1, God blessed them and said, be fruitful and work. That is God's blessing. God's blessing to them is to be fruitful and work. To be human, to be made in God's image, is to be blessed by being given work and the resources for that work so that we have gifts that God has given us, abilities, so that in fact we can do the things that we are called to do. When we are told in Genesis chapter 3, the results of sin, that sin has made the work, the labor of man and woman burden, burdensome, this does not eradicate, this does not eliminate the good gift of work. Rather, what we find in Genesis 3 is that work under the curse now tells a different story. It goes in a different direction. It's about death and not life. It's about cursing and not blessing. But if you remember... Creation and redemption go together. And as God is in the process of redeeming his creation, creation must be seen as blessing and not as curse. And work in the same way. Our work becomes participation in the life that God has given us. And once again, I think we can rediscover, we can discover creation as blessing.
Creation is, in fact, a blessing because God's creation is the proper place. It's the proper home for us as human beings for us to live and to work. The celebration in Scripture, such as what we've read in Psalm 104, is about God's abundant provision for life. And this only makes sense if, in fact, creation is blessing. And now we turn from work to another aspect of work that oftentimes we don't think of as work, and that is worship. That worship is, in fact, the fullest enactment of God's blessing in creation. Worship is the work of the people. It is in worship that we are to be most alive. Now, in Scripture, to be sure, that there are, there's a distinction, there's a differentiation between two types of work, if you wish. What we will call worship work and then other work. There is a distinction, but there should not be a separation. We should not put them in opposition to each other. Clearly, there's a difference. The fourth commandment dealing with the Sabbath shows us this. But both are necessary and both are tied to the other. Each one needs the other. Without the work that we do Monday through Saturday, our work week, if you wish, then the work worship we do on Sunday would not be possible. We need to eat. We need to pay the bills. And so we work Monday through Saturday so that we can worship on the Lord's Day. On the other hand, when we do not work on Sunday except to worship God, worship work if you wish, what we are saying is, you know what we did Monday through Saturday? That was a gift from God. That was blessing from God. And I can, in fact, step back from that and know that God is taking care of things. That I can, in fact, step back from my work week and worship God with the confidence that since creation is gift and creation is blessing, that God will take care of things. In true worship, we learn to relax and not be anxious about our lives. In true worship, we surrender our deeply held but false beliefs that life depends upon us. As a result of a weak doctrine of creation, some may see, in fact, worship as pointing to the belief that struggle is you know, what life is about, that God and Jesus Christ helps us in this struggle, and when the struggle is over, we will be rewarded and we all get to go to heaven. Such a view does not allow for creation as blessing or creation as being redeemed, in part because it doesn't see it as creation, it sees it as the world, as nature. This is false worship, and the biblical word for such worship is idolatry. Without a healthy doctrine of creation to guide us, we are susceptible to all forms of idols. And some of these idols actually come in the form of Christian guise, with Christian language, with religious and spiritual and biblical language to cloak them so they sound very biblical. We engage in idolatry and idolatrous worship when we allow the world to set the context for our worship. 
Such an approach to worship makes us or allows us to think of worship as a way to recharge our batteries. Let's go to church and recharge. Or to cope with life. Or it teaches us how to make our way in this world and how to prosper. This is idolatry. And in contrast to idolatrous worship, true worship brings us into another story. The story of God redeeming his creation. So worship is not an escape from this world, but rather it is a call to another story. The redemption of God's creation. And if we hear this story, then we begin to understand what the scripture says about life, that we are in this world, but not of this world, that we lose our lives in order to find them, and that the life of discipleship goes against the grain of this world. This is difficult, I think, to comprehend, but even more so to maintain, unless we enter into a story of creation as blessing. See, to know creation as blessing frees us from the need to control things, that I need to control the cosmos. To know creation as blessing frees us from the desire to escape. You see, if on the one hand you imagine that you can control things, and then after a while you realize there's no way I can control things, either because of my finiteness or my weakness or whatever, then we're tempted to say, well, let's just get out of here. Let's escape this world. If you see the world as a burden and a curse, then the temptation is either to try to control it or to escape it. And unfortunately, this is the route that many Christians have taken. And while there is something to the belief that life is hard and we live in a fallen world, um, Let us not forget that God is making another world, a new creation. He is redeeming this creation, and one day it will result in the new creation. The world is a burden and under a curse, but creation is a blessing and a gift. One more thing about this, creation as blessing. To know creation as blessing is to know the proper place of beauty in life. If the universe is a curse and a burden and is not blessed or blessing, then beauty is an anomaly. It becomes a means of coping with the burden and the curse, finding a bright spot amidst all the ugliness of the world. In this, in this scenario, beauty merely helps us go on through a cursed and burdensome world. It provides temporary relief, just sort of a ray of sunlight. Oh, there's some beauty. It helps me get through the day. It's not seen as a sign of the blessing of creation. In fact, what happens is creation is seen as cursed. And blessing is something that we completely miss. When we fail to connect beauty to the blessing of creation, then alternative accounts of beauty come up. So that, and we find this in the church, beauty is seen as a tool for witness. That we can, in fact, witness to people about the truth of the gospel by pointing to the beauty of creation. It's quite utilitarian. 
and I would say this is because of bad grammar. This, I think, ignores the work of the spirit in relationship. Others have sort of reacted against this, and so they see beauty as being beauty for its own sake, what some have called useless beauty. We need to understand that not only does all that is good, true, and beautiful have a place in God's creation, but also that what is good, true, and beautiful may be fully known and celebrated only when we are able to see creation as blessing. If we see it as cursing, then beauty takes on an entirely different, our perspective is completely different when it comes to such a matter. True beauty has no reality apart from the work of the one God who is Father, Son, and Spirit, who is redeeming creation. In closing, I want to review what we saw at the end of the sermon last Sunday and to do so in the light of what we've seen today. Creation as gift, creation as blessing. And that is, if creation is gift and if creation is blessing, what do we say about creation and justice? This is what we talked about last week at the end of the sermon. I think it's safe to say that, generally speaking, these are not two words that we put together creation and justice. And yet, if you read the scriptures, particularly in the Old Testament, the Old Testament prophets, we find time and time again that the wasting away of the world or the flourishing of the world, the ability of the land to produce life, the stuff of life, is directly connected to the conformity of the world to God's justice. Simply put, God's justice is the way in which the world becomes God's creation and sustains life. And to the extent that we violate God's justice, that which is gift and that which is blessing, in fact, may not flourish or be able to sustain life. You see, when we say the land or the environment, we are not talking about a natural system that is closed, that operates quite apart from the creator. And this, again, bad grammar uh, allows say oh, God created the world and then sort of wound it up and now it's we're in entropy things are slowly winding down and then at the end Jesus will come back no creation is gift and creation is blessing and God has called us and told us how we are to live and when we fail to do when we rebel against what he has told us to do then, in fact, there are implications, there are consequences in God's creation. I mentioned this last week. God's judgment is for the redemption of creation. It's ultimately not an act of condemnation, but an act of grace. Jesus said to Nicodemus, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. So when God judges the world, creation, when justice happens in God's creation, it is because of redemption. It isn't because God is wiping his hand or washing his hands and saying, I want nothing to do with creation. But in fact, he is in the process of redeeming things. And it is all going toward the new creation. If, in fact, people come to understand the one God who redeems creation, they will discover that God, in fact, has a purpose for them. That creation is gift 
and creation as blessing. And we receive from God the gifts that fulfill our lives and cause us to flourish, not because of our own strength, but because of God's gift and God's blessing. The strength that we have been given allows us to live in relationship with God. God who is Father, Son, and Spirit. Let me just say one thing in closing. Um, I've discovered in the last few years in teaching, but also in preaching, um, teaching in the university and preaching here, that I'm far more modern than I realize. That I'm oftentimes more modern than I am biblical in my thinking. And so I read passages like Psalm 104, that when God withdraws his spirit, things die, they shrivel up. And I affirm that that is true. And yet I find myself asking the drought that we are experiencing in this state. Is this purely a scientific thing that has happened? Weather patterns have shifted? Or could this in fact be, wait a minute, dare I say it, God's judgment? That God who creates the world, who is redeeming the world, who from time to time in his justice must bring judgment? It is almost as though I become two people. That the one person in me wants to affirm that God in fact does bring judgment. The other person wants to ascribe all of these things that are happening in the world to, to you know, global warming, you know, the things that human beings have done. In one, God is present, and in the other one, he is not. We are to have a good grammar of the one God who is Father, Son, and Spirit, and then we will have a good doctrine of creation, and then we will see creation as gift and blessing. And by God's grace, begin to see God's justice, even in creation, as God is redeeming his creation, and one day there will be a new heaven and a new earth. Let's pray together. Father, I imagine that your people of all times have had different battles to fight. Things that have sought to pull their thinking away from your way of thinking have led them astray. That even the worship of the one true God becomes a form of idolatry rather than true worship. Rather than surrendering and submitting and understanding who you are and your creation as gift and blessing becomes a way of escape, of recharging, or of learning the secret to making a lot of money. We, as your people at this place, this time, we look to you, Father, Son, and Spirit, to give us wisdom and understanding as we look at your creation. 
May we understand it as gift and blessing. May we understand the place of beauty in your creation. May we understand that you are not disengaged. It isn't simply cause and effect. You are far too gracious to allow that to happen. Because otherwise we would all be destroyed. But may we become more biblical in our thinking. Particularly in the matter of your creation. We thank you for your gift of creation and for the blessing of creation. We thank you that you have called us together to worship you. May your spirit and your grace go with us as we leave this place today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.